Um, my name is David Heinrichs. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the director of middle school and high school uh, ministry here at Christ Community, and I have been since 2006. I also participate in the worship team and, and help lead that as well, and um, I'm privileged to be here this morning. And those of you who are hoping that Paul would preach, um, I'm s- sorry to disappoint you that it isn't the pastor, but please do come back. He will preach again someday soon. <laughs> um, Wow, what a what a sermon last week! It's a great great way to follow. I guess it's a good thing to follow it, but um, but I do have the great book of Jude behind me, so I'm very pleased and and excited and privileged to bring you this great word here this morning. Uh, there are a lot of things that happen in these few verses that Jason read for us this morning that act as something that might wake you up out of a deep sleep. It might be like a cold water, a bucket of cold water thrown upon your face that violently awakes you up to a new truth and a new reality and maybe even a new depth of your understanding of who you are in Christ and who you are as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jude is a book that I'm sure very, very many of us don't know very much about. We can all quote verses from Romans and many other epistles, especially the ones that Paul writes and, and lots of memorized verses, lots of Bible studies. But, but how many here can quote uh, a passage from the book of Jude? There are only 25 verses. It's so small that a lot of times it's skipped over and forgotten about. It's almost at the very end, right before the book of Revelation. So it, it is often neglected, probably one of the most neglected books in the New Testament. But as we read these verses, let me just give you some context for you to understand where this this um, where Jude is trying to take his congregation and what he's trying to teach uh, these this body of believers. Jude is writing to a church to Christians who in their congregation have a, a certain segment or group of people who have decided to take the gospel that they've received and to pervert it to a license to sin, to make the grace of God permission to do anything they want. And so Jude is writing this book to this congregation to help them deal with this great false teaching. If you remember Galatians, Galatians is the book where Paul writes a similar message. There are false teachers among you, those of you who are in Galatia. And he writes very strong words to to equip the Galatian church to to deal with this false teaching. And so that's what Jude really is. But as I read and studied this book of Jude, it happened at least a dozen times where I was reading and this big bucket of cold water was just thrown on me. And, And spiritually, I just woke up to this new reality. Now, I'm an old fart. You know, I'm 40 years old. I've, I was raised in the church. I've heard this story of Jesus over and over again. My parents raised me in a very Christian home. I went to Christian school. I've been around the block, so to speak, in Christian circles. I've been there, and I've done that. And what happens to someone like me is that we get tired of the same old thing, right? 
We hear it over and over again, and we yawn. So if you're sitting in your seat this morning, and you heard the words that Jason read, and you're feeling complacent, or sleepy, or like there isn't a bucket of cold water waking you up to any new spiritual reality, one of my great goals this morning is to show you how that happened for me. And two things I hope will happen. First, you will see what I saw and the glories that I saw in this great gift of God called the book of Jude. But second, and not only that, my hope and desire is that you'll take this kind of reading with you wherever you go. With the Bible. The Bible is active. I was an English teacher for six years. I taught lots of books to lots of kids. We read books together. You know, and we always read these books. And, but those books were dead. They were written by authors oftentimes that are no longer living. This book is magical. I mean, it's magical. It's weird. Something starts to happen. And I, I promise you, it's almost like fairy dust is sprinkled on me. And, and the, the, I don't know, it doesn't happen that way. But there's something weird that happens when I read the Bible. And you know what it is? It's not magic at all. It's the Spirit of God taking the sword and piercing, piercing deeply Deep into your heart, separating things that you didn't separate before. So deep, it goes so deep into your bone and marrow and separates even that. That's the word of God. And you, you can't read this book in a complacent way. It's active. It's going to change your life. So that's, that's one of my great hopes is, as we go through these words that that's what happens. It, it awakens you as if there were... Buckets of cold water being splashed upon you. Now, there are four buckets that I'm going to mention here out of uh, at least a dozen or maybe a baker's dozen of uh, 13 or 14 of them that happened for me. But, but there's four I want to mention. First, who is Jude? That's the first bucket splashing upon me. Who is Jude? Second, who is he writing to? Seems kind of straightforward. Uh, third, what does Jude want us to do? And then fourth and finally, how does Jude want us to do that? So, we need to pray. We need to pray for those things to happen, and I pray um, that that will. Let's, let's pray together. God, we humbly come into your presence, and we ask that your spirit be here with us this morning. Nothing will happen without you. We have your word. We are committed to it. We submit to it, but God, we desperately need your spirit. And we, as Jude encourages us, we are praying right now in the spirit for you to come and to open our eyes and open our ears. Give us a new heart for this message this morning. We pray earnestly in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first, who is Jude? It says here, the first verse, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So we know two things about Jude. He's a servant of Jesus Christ, means he's a Christian. That's great. It's a good thing that a Christian is actually writing a book in the Bible, uh, and he qualifies himself as a Christian there. Uh, and, he, and he also says he's a brother of James. So who is this Jude? Who is this guy? You ever wonder that? Well, I looked into it a little bit. And the word Jude, the name Jude, is also another form of it is Judas, and another form of it is Judah, with an H, A-H, Judah. 
So Judas is probably the one I know most about. It's probably one of the 12, right? The betrayer. The, the betrayer is right. No, it can't be. It's not Judas Iscariot. So I'm thinking, who is this Jude? Well, there's a clue. He's a brother of James. How many Judes are there or Judases that have a brother named James? And if you go to, uh, if you go to the book of Matthew and you look in the, um, uh, sorry, yes, Matthew in the 13th chapter, it says this. It says, coming to his hometown, Jesus taught them in their synagogue so that they were all astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So Jesus is teaching and they're saying, this is weird. This is in his own hometown. Who is this guy? Isn't this guy? Who is he? And he says, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Don't we know Jesus? Don't we know this guy? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So we know Jude is the brother of James, who is the brother of Jesus. Now, if I'm speaking to you, I might feel a little nervous. And in order for me to attain some kind of respect from you, wouldn't it be in my best interest to say, I have a special message from the Lord. How do I qualify myself? I haven't gone to seminary. I grew up with Jesus. Okay? He was my brother. All right? We played football in the backyard. Jesus and I are tight. I have a special relationship with Jesus. So therefore, you all ought to just listen to me. But what does he say? He doesn't say, hey, guys, I'm the brother of Jesus. That doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm the servant, the servant of Jesus. Now, why does James do that? I mean, why does Jude, why does Jude do that? Well, he might be embarrassed. Maybe. It's possible. Mark chapter 3 says this. Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered. Very common in the Gospels. Jesus is teaching and healing and people are gathering in great numbers. And it says this, so that Jesus and his disciples were not even able to eat. Verse 21 of Mark 3 says, when his family heard it, that's James and Jude and other members of his family, they went out to seize Jesus for they were saying he's out of his mind. So Jude was not a follower of Jesus Christ. He thought Jesus, his brother, was out of his mind. He thought he was crazy. And he was protecting his own family name by going to the home and trying to seize Jesus and bring him back and say, Jesus, stop it. You're embarrassing us. And it's here we see Jude's letter. And Jude says later on in, in, other, in other verses, he says that Jesus is not my brother. He's my ser- I'm, I'm his servant. He's my master. He's my Lord. That's what Jude says of Jesus. So Jude, he he witnesses the crucifixion. He witnesses the resurrection. And he encounters Jesus along the way. We don't know all the details, but we know that his life has totally changed. A hundred percent. At first, he was Jesus's brother. Jesus started acting crazy at around 30 years old. And Judas tried to seize Jesus because he was out of his mind. And then he flips completely. And Jesus is no longer his brother. In fact, Jesus is his only master and Lord. It's it's amazing what Judas says about Jesus later on. He says in verse 5, listen to these words. Jude, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
This is Jude saying this of his brother. Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. Do you see that? What is Jude saying? My brother, Jesus, is my half-brother. We don't share the same father. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God in flesh. God is the one that led people out of Egypt. And now he recognizes Jesus. The veil falls and Jude looks at the Son of God. He looks at God in flesh. And that absolutely transforms Jude's life. Whenever you see that, whenever you see a, a, a life that is totally flipped and totally changed, that's the gospel. Paul writes, that's the power of the gospel to save all those who believe. The power. It, it changes your life. And you know what a dead church would be? If you were to think of a dead church in hypothetical situation, what would it look like? What would be missing? It would be, there would be no life change. Nobody would change their mind. Nobody would be like Jude. Now, the reason I say that is because look at the other writers of the New Testament. And this is where the bucket really gets intense for me. It's just freezing cold water and I'm waking up. Look at Paul. Look at Peter. Look at the Apostle John. Look at all the writers of the New Testament. They were all like Jude. In one way or another, they were against Jesus. They didn't understand Jesus. They were, they were for themselves. And then they encountered the gospel, the power of God, and it changed their life. And when you see a life change like that, go, go to it. Get near it. Get close by. And just watch. Watch the glory of God. Watch the power of God. Be in that congregation where those kinds of life changes happen. And when they do, put them on the stage and display them for all to see. Because that is the way we're going to see the glory of God. And, and I mean, it's just the first half of the first verse where I read Jude, a servant of Jesus and a brother of James, uh, James where this just washes over me. This is the gospel. It's so powerful. Now, that's the first bucket. Now, as we move into the next bucket, if you will, we're going to see some new things added to this. It says in the last half of verse 1 and 2, verse 2, it says, To those who are called, loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. There it is. That... That's a, that's a bucket of cold water. <laughs> Do you see it? I'm wondering if you see it. There are three words, personally, this is where it hit me, three words that came over me. First, it's called, then it's loved, and then it's kept. And if you just take a moment and you just meditate on those three words, what does it mean to be called? What does it mean to be loved? And what does it mean to be kept? Well, if you're called and you have a cell phone, you know exactly what that means. It goes off sometimes in a good spot and sometimes in a bad spot. When you're in a bad spot, you send it to voicemail and move forward. The call of God isn't like that. It comes to you and you cannot resist it. You can't send God's call to voicemail. right? You, you can't say, I hear you, but I'm walking away now and I'm not answering the call. It's irresistible. How do I know that? 
If you go to Romans chapter 8 in verse 30, it says, those that God predestined, he chose, predestined before time, okay, he predestined them, those he called. And to those he called, he justified. So everyone who's justified was called. Everyone who's called is justified. It's not like some of them heard the call and said, nah, not for me. This kind of call from God, when, when you hear this, this language that God is calling sinners to repent, it's the kind of call that, that just drives you, draws you to God. It's, 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 it's an awesome power. So, so that's what happens here in Jude. He's talking to people who are called by God. Now, the next one is loved by God. So it's in a special order. You're called by God, then you're loved. And if you go to Hebrews chapter 12, you'll read the words that God disciplines those he loves. So there's a loving relationship. It could be a a warm, fuzzy hug from God, but it also could mean that God is disciplining you as he would his own children because he loves you and he wants you to grow and he wants you to be full of joy. And the third word is kept. And, and this is especially helpful to me. It'll be helpful, I think, to you. We are being preserved. Once we're called, once we're loved, it'll never change. Never change. We're always kept. You see, in this age, in life, you and I, we go to the left, we go to the right, we go up, we go down. We're, we're going everywhere. We're sinning. We're resisting sin, then we sin again, and we resist sin, and we just keep going in this life, messing up all of the time, being imperfect, making terrible mistakes, identifying idols every day. But God, in all of that, God keeps us. He holds us. Now, this is the thought process I had as I was thinking about these words. Immediately went to my daughters, because they're my, they're my family, and I thought of Haley, for example. Haley, at one point, was not my daughter, but, uh, but I called her. I did all the paperwork. I went to Ethiopia. I called her to be my daughter. Haley couldn't resist that call. I mean, I mean she just, okay, I guess I'll just go over here and be your daughter. I don't know. Okay, I'm a Heinrich now. And she was made my daughter, and, and, and that's how we're drawn to God in many ways. There is an element of choice that we walk towards God, but really it's God calling us. So Haley has made my child, and she's a Heinrich now. Now she's my daughter. I bring her home. We experience life together. I call that I love her. I'm loving her. How do I love her? Just like God loves us. I discipline her. I teach her wisdom, teach her what to do and what not to do and this kind of thing. And this is just, this is my fathering of my daughter, okay? And then, and then also I keep her. I, I don't send her off. In fact, there's nothing in life that Haley can do that will make her anything other than my daughter. She'll always be my daughter. And one thought occurred to me when we go to the beach, Haley runs straight for the water. It's because she doesn't know the danger of the ocean. She doesn't know that she can't breathe underwater. You know, she doesn't quite connect the dots. And so she'll run into the water and just, you know, the waves will come, whoa, and knock her flat. And she'll get up and go, wow, that was kind of fun. And, and I'm always nervous, so I'm right on her heels. And one time she saw the wave, which was immense. It was waist high. But for her, it was immense. And, and it overwhelmed her. And she reached back. It was so cool. I could have taken a picture. She reached back and her facial expression was, help me now, please. Reaching for daddy, 
I reached for her. It was very natural. We clung. Like, I, I grabbed her, her body, and she grabbed my arms. And, I mean, and she, she grabbed my arms so tight, you know, she left, like, marks in my arms. Now, let me ask you a question. Whose grip secured hope? Was it her grip? Because she was holding on. James, I mean, Jude, I don't know why James, brother of James, the brother of James. Jude says to hold on to God. But, but the question here before you is, which grip secures you? It's my grip. It's the Father's grip. I've got her. Haley's not strong at all. If, if I just put my hands out like this and said, grab on. Whoops, you didn't grab on. Oh, too bad for you. No, it's my grip that lifts her up out of the danger and into safety. It is God's grip. It's his keeping of you. That's, that's really going to secure you. So hold on, but, but God is keeping you. These are great truths. So buckets of water are coming. The third one, what does Jude want us to do? And it's in verse 3. And as I read the first two verses, you might have heard violins. I did when I read them. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. It's like so beautiful. It's like poetic. And, and then verse 3, beloved. I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see that? Kind of wakes you up, doesn't it? Like cold water. It's like, wow, I can't believe I just read that. It's right there. Can you believe it? Let me, let me take you on the journey here. The, the violin music stops. I mean, it's over. And Jude says, look, guys, I really want to. I'm very eager. I mean, my knees are going up and down, and I'm so excited. It's like I'm a little kid right before a theme park ride, and I'm just like, yes. But no, I turn aside from that. Great thing. What did he want to write about? A common salvation. Common community. He wants to be in a safe and warm place. He wants to know Everybody's name, where everybody knows his name, kind of like that cheer song. He wants to be in a safe and warm place, right, where everybody knows his name. And he wants to talk about their salvation. Oh, God loves us and he saved us and we're destined for paradise. And he says, but no, I found it necessary. Some translations say this. I was compelled. There's something in me, says Jude. That's kind of necessary, moves me and it makes me want to do something I don't want to do and pastors do that from time to time they have to do that everyone who stands behind here paul phillips and then the pastor after him and the pastor after him has to do that cannot neglect doing that it is vital to warding off and facing false teaching and keeping the gospel at the center of our church it is so important to find it necessary to appeal to the congregation. Now, the appeal is just trying to persuade you to think differently and do something differently. Well, what is it exactly? It's just a phrase, contend for the faith. Now, when I heard, when I read that, I had to read it like six times before it finally sank in what he was trying to say. Contend for the faith. If, if that doesn't strike you, do a little exercise when you read the Bible. This is what I did. It might work for you. Just understand what the words mean. 
the faith. Right? Not contend for faith in general, the saving faith in Jesus Christ, or the faith that Christ applauded people before he healed them. Your faith has healed you, this kind of thing. No, it's the faith. Now, if you read the faith in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles and the pastoral epistles and the books in the New Testament, you'll find that the words the faith refers to a body of beliefs. What is at the center of Christianity? It is, in other words, the gospel. The gospel is the center. It's what we're all about. So, listen, this is not a side issue. This is, Jude is not saying, I wanted to talk about our common salvation, but guys, lose the electric guitar. Really? Come on. Get the drums up here. Where's the drum? He's not talking about musical style. Where's the organ? He could say that. No, no, it's not musical style. He's like, guys, you are just too casual. What's, well, what's up with the flip-flops? I mean, come on. It's not dress code. What's he talking about? It's not a paint job on a car. It's not the stereo. It's the engine. It's something that if it weren't fixed, the church wouldn't go anywhere. It would, it would die. And so it's the gospel. And he's saying this is center. And so we're all thinking, oh, hey, the faith. Wow, this is something we have to lean forward and listen to because this is central to our church. And the word contend. Contend. Now, in, in, this, in this word, it's helpful to do a five-second Google search. And this is what I found. Contend. Dispute earnestly. Aggressive competition. Fight in order to win. Argue with all your might. Insist without compromise. Stand up and fight. That's what Jude is saying. Now, do you feel that way about the gospel? Ask that question to yourself. Have I ever felt like that about the gospel? I love the gospel. I like to hear about it. But I never really feel hot or angry or ready to just fight without compromise and win when it comes to the gospel. If that's the case, if you've never felt like that, you have to ask yourself why. Why have you not ever felt that way? Jude wants you to feel that way. He wants you to fight for the gospel. And, and let, me, let me give you an illustration that came to my mind. As I was, this is an illustration. Let's say I'm sitting at home on the couch and, and the fireplace is there and I'm reading a nice book. And then my wife is over here and she's reading a nice book and the kids are playing checkers and everybody's getting along. It's really this evening never exists. I mean, <laughs> rarely. But let's just pretend for the sake of the sermon this morning that that's the case. That everything's happy and hot, hot cocoa and marshmallows. Everything's great. Then intruders come in and they have guns. Right? And they have guns. And they're coming in with guns. And they say, keep sitting on the couch. Shut up. Don't say anything. You sit there. Everything you have is now mine. And he starts to take my wallet, my watch. Uh, my socks, my shoes. Uh, okay, then he gets to the computers and the iPod and, and all the things that I have that's electronic. He takes my wedding ring, getting a little more personal. Would you stand up and fight at that moment? Would you contend or not? I probably wouldn't because I would be thinking of my kids and the gun. 
and maybe those two would meet in a terrible way, and I don't want to make this person shoot. So I'm just going to sit back, and I'm going to let him take my stuff. So often, we feel like that, don't we, about the gospel? We allow ourselves to become complacent, ho-hum. And that's why when we read the Bible, these buckets of water just come washing over us. You have to see Jude is saying, guys, I want you to stand up and fight. Stand up and fight. Get up and fight. It's fighting words that Jude is using here. Now, let's say these intruders moved on from my stuff and and wrapped my kids' arms together like this and, and started leading them out the door. And my daughters are are yelling back, Daddy, Daddy, help me. I mean, what do you feel now, dads? You feeling it? I feel it too. I feel rage. Like this otherworldly kind of thing. And I'm like, I don't care about guns at this point. These are my kids. The gospel is that important to Jude. Is it that important to us? Is the gospel that important to you to where you're ready to fight for it proactively? Now, he doesn't say defend the faith, does he? He says contend for the faith. You can do lots of contrast of the word contend to kind of help you understand what he's trying to say. If if he used the word defend... Well, then that would mean it's kind of like the city of Jericho where there's great big walls and there's these enemies, you know, and they're obviously enemies because they're not inside the city. They're outside the city and they're breaking down the walls and they're conquering and killing and pillaging. They're they're intruders. But he doesn't use this word defend. And part of the reason, I think, is because of the nature of these false teachers it's it's not something that the people in his church have forgotten about. It's not remind or remember the faith. It could be. Those are all great words. Defend the faith, remember the faith, proclaim the faith. Great words, and they all have a, a place in our life. But in this book of Jude, this particular problem is different. It's not an intruder breaking in. It's not the congregation, oops, I forgot the gospel. Trying to get out, you know, just I unintentionally forgot it. No, it's something different than that. In, in the book of Jude, we have people who have perverted, and this is verse 4, I'm going to read it. Perver, or, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So... So this false teaching is from within. It's a little closer to home. If if you knew a person who perverted the grace of God into a permission to do anything he wants, denying Jesus Christ, don't you think you'd notice that? I think I would. I would definitely notice that. There was a kid that came uh, to detour. Many, many kids come to detour who don't know Christ. And this one in particular loved to ask uh, provocative questions every once in a while. A couple years ago, he pulled me aside after uh, detour at night, and he pulled me aside and he said, uh, I don't know really why I would ever obey the Bible. 
I mean, if you're saying what's true and I've been forgiven past, present and future, why would I obey God? And it was provocative and he was kind of had a twinkle in his eyes like, come on, try to answer that one. What do you think about that? He's trying to push me a little bit. Everybody would notice someone like that. But Judas saying these false teachers have crept in what the, the meaning of the word crept creeping in. It's secret. You don't notice it. And therefore, you're not doing anything about it. And now, who here? I'm looking out. I see a lot of people I know. And Jude is telling me that in this congregation, someone has crept into this congregation and is perverting the grace of God. And it's my job to identify who this person is. It's interesting that in, in verse 4, it's unnoticed to the congregation. Is it unnoticed to God? Does God notice? Does he see? No, he does. See. Of course he sees. They were designated beforehand for condemnation. That's why he puts that in there. It, look, God is not surprised, but I am and you are. So let's just take a moment. May 29th, 2011, I hereby start the witch hunt. All right. This is what we're going to do for two weeks. We're going to look around. Just look to the neighbor. Look at them. Try to figure out, are you perverting the grace of God? Who is it among us that's doing that? Well, that's not what Jude says contending for the faith means. Okay, he, he definitely wants us to identify error and heresy. And if you read the middle portion of the book, he tries to put this false teaching into a typology of others that have gone before that were clearly false teachers and he uses Korah's rebellion and others. And, and so he says, hey, we do want to identify these false teachings. But in verse 20, and here's the bucket of cold water. In verse 20, it says, but you, beloved, right there, splash. He says, but you. Me? Hmm. Okay. Uh, why are you talking to me, Jude? He says, but you building yourself up in the most holy faith. Me? Come on. Are you? Wait. Are you identifying me as a false teacher? What would you say to that? He would say, look, look, you are your worst false teacher. You're the one. If you look at yourself, if I look at myself, how many erroneous thoughts, incorrect doctrine, do I have? Well, the answer to that question is, how many times have I been changed? How many times have I been corrected? How many times have my mind been changed? Hundreds of times. And if you look in your heart, if you look at yourself, you'll see it, it very well comes, very well could come from even within your own heart. Yes, there are people there are outsiders. There are people inside here who are perverting. But Jude is saying, you, I want you to look at yourself. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Luke 6. He says these words, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, how can you take the speck out of your neighbor's eye? How can you do that? When you have something bigger in your own eye, you have a plank in your own eye. And Jesus is saying all right, I want you to take the plank out 
so that you can take the speck out. It's not just worry about yourself and never, ever look at other people. No, he's saying take the plank out of your eye so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of his eye. What's he saying? When you confront someone in sin, identify that sin in you. See the motivation you have for sin. See the idol you have in your life for sin. And and Jude encourages us to build ourselves up in this most holy faith. If we read on, he says other words to us that are very helpful. He says uh, in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So 20 and 21, I want you to stop looking outside of yourself for just a moment, Jude says, and I want you to look at yourself. And I think what Jude is saying when he says the words, building yourself up in your most holy faith, that's something you do on your own. Now, this service is very helpful. I'll say it. It's very helpful to me. When I come in here and I read the affirmation of faith and I read the confession and and we pray together and we remember Jason's life and all the great things that we saw God do there. And when I hear a sermon and sing songs about God's grace being enough and all this great, rich stuff that happens here in the service, it's very, very, very helpful and encouraging to me. But what Jude is saying is take that home with you. I went to a a conference just recently where I probably heard this phrase 20 times. Preach the gospel to yourself. That's weird. I mean, that's a new thought for me. Preach the gospel to myself. How do I do that? And one answer to that question is to read the Bible like we have been reading and discussing it this morning. Don't just read the words and gloss over and move forward and just, you know, and just read it. Don't read it like you you, you do a, a newspaper. Slow down. The words mean something. And they'll be like buckets of water that wake you up to new and fresh levels of understanding and reality and maturity. And it'll change your life. The Bible will change your life. And he says to pray in the spirit. I can't talk more about this, but, but I will say this, that in Jude, there's a difference between the false teachers and the saints, the Christians. The false teachers are devoid of the Spirit. They're outside of the Spirit. And the, the, uh, the Christians are in the Spirit. And, and there's a very big dis- distinction between the two. So there's a praying in the Spirit. There's a waiting Waiting for what? Waiting for condemnation? No, waiting for mercy. There's all these great lessons that we can learn and apply to our lives to build ourselves up in the faith. And so that's what he wants to start with and say, let's do that first. Then once you deal with the plank, once you've got that understood, once you understand how you yourself could be a false teacher and how you could come up with things that are hurtful and harmful, once you get that, then step out. And and we read verse 21. You step out. And this is the design of the Bible. This is the way the Bible teaches us over and over and over. Start with yourself. Don't end with yourself. Move out. And he says in verse 21, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show others mercy Uh, to others. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So snatching others out of the fire, I understand that. But the whole 
phrase, have mercy on those who doubt. How does Jude, this is the bucket I'm saying, remember I said, how does Jude want us to contend for the faith? You start with yourself and then you have mercy. You have mercy on others because we understand their sin from personal experience. So there's many things we can say, but we're going to wrap it up. I want you to remember who Jude is writing or who Jude is, a changed man who repositions himself under Christ. I want you to remember who he's writing to, those who are called and loved and kept by God for Christ. And I want you to remember what he wants us to do, contend for the faith, and remember how he wants us to do it by starting with ourselves and moving on to others. Let's pray.